human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ember Sadat. Join me and my co-host, Ace Deliri, as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Welcome to Risky Conversations, Nilafar. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, Ace. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Nilafar. You can call me Nilu if you want. Um, uh, I'm a PhD student in systems engineering at Virginia Tech. I got my master's in model-based systems engineering from University of Maryland at College Park. I got my bachelor's in aerospace engineering uh, in Sharif University of Technology back in Iran. So it's been five years that I, I'm in, um, in the United States. I also worked for aviation industry for a few years. Um, so I, as a system analyst. So I guess, yeah, that's all. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's quite the uh, uh, career path in terms of where you started and where you're going now. So what what is your PhD going to be in? Well, um, I mostly work on the theory of systems engineering. I don't know if, if you're aware of it, but um, systems engineering has been recently introduced uh, as an individual discipline, right? So before... It was kind of a combination of some kind of best practices and heuristics that different uh, experts in different fields uh, had based on their try and errors working with uh, complex systems. So it was kind of um, a combination of best practices. But um, then systems engineering community um, realized that we, re- we really need more rigorous um, and solid foundation for systems engineering. So we need to introduce a domain specifically concerned with uh, the finding the theory and application of appropriate strategies in making complex systems. So... That's what we call the theory of systems engineering. So I mostly work on this area um, as as my PhD, you know, research. So this is um, this is divided into different subfields. So um, we can work on problem formulation. We can work on system architecture. We can work on verification and validation part. Well, that's pretty cool. So let's just start with the basics for our listeners who may not be very well versed with your field. What exactly is a system? How do you define it in your scientific notation? Well, um, there are lots of different, you know, definitions that different organizations um, provide. But the one that I think it's really necessary for everyone to know is that systems System is basically a combination of uh, interrelated and um, interdependent components that can work together in order to achieve specific 
functionality um, in their operating environment. So it's completely based on their context. Um, sometimes they um, they show synergy or immersion behavior or adaptive behaviors, but sometimes are simply interconnecting with each other to achieve a common goal. Um, and in, in terms of, I mean, in a more like rigorous terms, you can define system as uh, an entity with uh, specific boundaries uh, in space and time, right? And it can get a set of possible inputs, have its own internal process processes and provide, you know, um, uh, a set of outputs based okay. on its context. So that's that's the basic of definition of systems. Okay. So when I hear you speak, I, I, my mind goes in three different places. So help me delineate the difference between a system like, for example, the human body is, so if you look at it, it's got to be sort of a system, right? Because things are trying to keep you alive. Other things are trying to keep you dead. There's energy being used. There's energy being consumed. Uh, you know, there's repairs being done, there's damage being done, you know, all that stuff. There's the, also the economy, which is the entire planet interconnected, going about their business. People are fraudsters, people are uh, running Ponzi schemes, other people are producing stuff. And then there's mechanical systems like a car. So you have a car where you can, to a certain degree, predict what's going to happen in a car much easier than you could with a human body or a economy. Uh, so when you're looking at these differences, what what in your mind helps you distinguish between a car, an economy, or a body? Because technically they could all be labeled as systems. No. Uh, so first of all, uh, we should uh, understand that there's no such thing as system out there, right? So it's it's kind of a conceptual um, entity that we created just in order to you know. Uh, deal with the complexity of the real world, right? So it's not, like, you cannot objectively define a system like we, I have a car. It is a system. It's, it's, a, it's a wrong approach to defining the system. We have a real world, and as you said, everything is connected. Everything is interdependent. Um, some of the systems are very complex, like climate change, like a weather system. How do you want to define a boundary for the system? It's it's not objective, right? You can you can consider so many factors that can affect um, into the final outcome of some phenomena, right? So it depends on how you want to deal with the complexity, how of uh, the the immediate constraints and limitations allow you to, um, you know, extend the boundaries, consider more variables, more factors in your systems. Uh, we have different, you know, limitations, computation, tools, and even our capa thinking capabilities, right? So uh, th this is one specific inform um, in information that we need to keep in our mind. And then when we're talking about systems engineering, um, I mean, of course, the traditional term of terms of systems engineering is traced back to uh, to World War II when 
we actually realized that we need kind of a holistic view of, of uh, engineering systems when we face so many failures in using um, different tools and equipments during World War II. So that's why systems engineering as a new paradigm um, emerged. But um, so, so uh, before you go on, just can you help us understand when you say so we had a, a initial conversation about systems. So now we're going to transition over to systems engineering. So it, the idea of systems engineering is different from a system in the regard that it's a it's a, it's an area of study that you can actually sort of somewhat um, you know pigeonhole and, and study and, and and measure the input and output. Is that where the engineering aspect of it comes in, or, or is that just still me reaching for um, for various branches that are not there? Well, um, systems engineering was born out of uh, system philosophy, systems theory, right? So we had these um, concepts and principles for um, general systems. And of course, we have like different categories of systems, organic, sub-organic, super-organic systems. But in general, we have some sets of, you know, uh, definitions for system. And at some point, we, um, we realized that we need to use these kind of principles when we are trying to add a new kind of system into our context. The one that was not um, uh, invented before, had not been invented before. So the traditional term of systems engineering is exactly what you said. So uh, we wanted uh, to, you know, create, build these kind of engineering systems to achieve some types of goal in our context. And then we use like different practices for this, different methodologies. How do we deal with the complexities? How do we approach the systems thinking? We use, I mean, we'll leverage systems thinking in this process. So this is types of systems engineering, traditional systems engineering approach, which was specifically uh, defined for engineering systems. Like, Aerospace systems, defense systems, um, civil infrastructure systems, and things like that. But as the emerging complexities in different um, systems um, show in, in, in the real world, then um, the definition of systems engineering has evolved. For example, now we can engineer of, I don't know, a political agreement, right? Or uh, we can engineer, like uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can use systems engineering approach to deal with the complexity of a system like an economic, like a stock market or, um, or working with uh, societies, dealing with human-centered uh, systems. So it's it all depends on the context you are working on. So the new definition of systems engineering is not limited to engineering systems. It's it's about how you can um, leverage these methodologies, these philosophies, uh, to different types of systems. Um, yeah, and it's it's way beyond the engineering world. I see. So, so when I hear all this, um, 
my mind first gravitates toward it. So if somebody's listening to you right now, their 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 main question may be, why should I study systems engineering? What kind of uh, real world applications to this concept are there? Uh, is this just a theoretical area of study for people who are interested in math and and they're you know looking at nonlinear systems that are that are all around us, or is this something that you can actually take? And you can say, okay, I can take the – so I'll give you an example. So if you study business, for example, if you study finance, you can get a job virtually in any business, even a, a nonprofit because they have to know how to manage their finances, right? So it's a very broad general idea that you can apply every which way you go. So if you study systems engineering the way you're describing it here, where is the insight that it's going to lend itself so you can apply it in multiple domains? Or is it just a narrow band and I'm giving it more um, leeway than it actually uh, fairly wants on its own. Right. Um, so when when you're dealing with different systems, there are different sources of complexities, uncertainties, and risks associated with uh, with that system. For example, uh, uh, when when you are dealing with a very large scale um, engineering system, right? You you might have to deal with uh, different uh, types of disciplines. You have control engineers, you have software engineers, you have um, user interface uh, designers and things like that. The, in, the interactions between these organizations and these, these teams, sub-teams, in order to achieve a common goal is kind of one of the sources of this complexity. How do you how do you manage these interfaces, like these different types of interfaces? How do you um, how do you make sure that their specific solution uh, solution space and design space is aligned with the um, with the higher level of system goal? How how do you want to deal with that? Of course, when you have just a team of control engineers and a team of software engineers and a team of hardware engineers, they are they are best at their own expert at their own fields of expertise. So they can they can provide the most efficient, for example, control system for their own purpose. But how do you um, how do you fit this? Um, this subsystem into a bigger entity and make sure that this this system this subsystem is still aligned with the entire you know uh, um, functionality and entire purpose of the system it's a, it's a it's a very big challenge and on the other hand when you're dealing with for example different types of data the logic behind data the um, information that you can get uh, from this data, the huge amount of variables that you need to take into consideration. Look at this pandemic. Like there are lots of, I mean, at first there was no data, no information, and people were um, saying that, okay, we don't have enough information, so I, we think that we are overreacting. And now we have lots of data, lots of information from different places in the world. But still, we cannot um, kind of appropriately manage the noise and 
the differences between between perfect information and incomplete information um, with the noise, it's um, it, it's a very big challenge that adds to the complexity of your system. And all of these are just one aspect of the complexity uh, when you are dealing with systems. Uh, the nature of the systems are also very complex. For example, um, when when you are uh, dealing with kind of systems and you want to analyze the behavior of the system or the or the structure of the system, you have um, you you can assume that the system can get a set of inputs, but there are some times that you don't have um, enough information about the all possible inputs that the system can get. Or even if you can understand all the possible inputs that the system can get, you cannot either by computational uh, limitations or by just unknown unknowns or known unknowns, known unknown knowledge, you cannot grasp the possible um, set of outputs. So it's uh, the the nature of um, nonlinear nonlinear response uh, responses from this system really um, asks for a higher level of understanding of the system. First of all, in order to um, to you know catch all these invalid assumptions. Um, how to you know tailor your problem formulation? How you make sure that this specific solution space is a right solution for the right problem? Um, and and at some point when you don't have enough information, then how you're gonna deal with these uh, uncertainties? How you take risks re uh, regarding these um, these um, uh, you know, um, uh, uncertainty and lack of knowledge and ignorance that you have. So uh, systems engineers basically try to address these high level uh, aspect of, you know, um, engineering systems. And that's really interesting because it's one of the very few um, disciplines that um, it was used in real world for so long. And then we it it um we really thought that okay we need to to um to think about it in a more rigorous way to um think about possible you know strategies to deal with these kind of complexities so it's it's a kind of kind of uh different di difference from the traditional you know um uh, uh, disciplines that they drive some mathematical theories, drive some, you know, principles, and then they want to apply to the real world. In systems engineering, the process is completely um, uh, in different direction. You see this real world problem and you want to um, make sure that um, there are some strategies to deal with these problems. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm not saying that it's kind of, backward engineering, it's not. Um, it's just finding principles uh, that you can deal with um, 
with these problems, you know, in a especially um, higher scale of system development and system design and problem formulation? Well, it, it really depends on, on your problem. Uh, that's, that's a very, very um, important thing to deal, important problem to deal with. Um, when, when you are, well, there's, there's a dilemma here. We, when we don't have enough information, you cannot, uh, you know, completely, you know, understand the system and analyze the system behaviors. And on the other hand, when you have lots of information, then how do you want to verify this amount of information? How do you want to, uh, you know, uh, uh, deal with the, with the noises, uh, with, um, coming from, uh, coming with this, uh, amount of information? But, um, of course there are, uh, you know, things that, uh, you can do about it. For example, um, understanding the causation like the underlying causes of this data what are what are the specific scenarios that led to to the um, to this data to this information um, how the limitations and constraints different constraints um, had some kind of impacts on your data so it's not like just having data and doing some statistical analysis and uh, make decisions on, on, on your uh, system behaviors and system structure. It's, it's about understanding the causation. It's about finding the correct words to describe the problem at, uh, in the first place. So, for example, if you have a problem, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going to provide a very stupid example, but... Um, for example, if you uh, if you have a problem like you need a car, you need to buy a car. Is this your real problem? Is this your real need, or is this derived by some other needs? For example, more than a car, you need self confidence, something like that. You know, so it's kind of understanding the roots of the problems, uh, how to formulate your um, problems and how to uh, order uh, decision criteria based on that problem. Um, these are the ways that you can, you can possibly avoid from noises and unrelated information. Like w when, you, when you can solid, uh, when you can provide a solid framework for your system, then um, it's, it's easier for you to just omit unrelated and inappropriate uh, information coming in your way. Okay, so let's, um, let's go from the theoretical to some of the more practical approaches to it. So give me an example of a system that you could look at right now. Like, for example, I, mean, I imagine the, the response to the pandemic is sort of like a systems-level problem, right? So you have people who believe that this thing is a hoax and there's nothing really a big deal about it. And there are other people saying this is actually quite dangerous, so we need to address it. And then so you have multiple layers because you have the political layer, then you have the financial layer because a lot of the, the poorer countries may not have the uh, money to you know, uh, have all their entire population take time off while they try to isolate everybody 
and you know uh, handle the income loss that comes with it. Then you have the actual hospitals that are getting overwhelmed. Then you have the suppliers that are bringing the equipment into the hospital to help treat the issues. So there's multiple layers of that. So is that like a, a that that must seem like a, a dream scenario for somebody like you because you can study at uh, that particular issue at multiple layers, no? Yeah, exactly. It's it's at the same time very interesting topic to just look at um, as a systems engineer, and at, and at the same time it's very sad, you know, especially given the fact that when you when I go back and when I look back in retrospect and saw that all these, I mean, think about all these things happening in early January, all these uh, crazy stuff happened in uh, Wuhan, and uh, there were really uh, very few people who actually um, raised the question of this being um, a pandemic or the possibility of this being a pandemic is not insignificant. And and then at the same time, you, you think you see that the emerging patterns of individual behaviors as well as like collective behaviors as uh, we go through this crisis. It's, it's really interesting for me. At, of course, it raises so many questions on my mind that, to be honest with you, I have no solid answer to you to um, right now. For example, um, how these you know actions were derived? Is it is like how how do you make sure that all these actions from President Trump are not derived from the fact that the you know uh, the election is coming? So how how many of these actions are derived from purely economic uh, drivers? How many of these actions are derived from purely moral um, frameworks and ethical frameworks? And and again, we are witnessing the vagueness of the framing of this problem. For example, in some countries, uh, you can see that they don't do anything, um, at least for like um, in Iran, that I, I have some firsthand information from my you know relatives and friends there. Uh, basically, the government doesn't do anything effectively against the spread of this um, virus. And sometimes you don't know what the logic behind these decisions are or the lack of decisions are. Um, are they really trying to just, um, you know, get rid of some percentage of their population or um, do they think about purely economic gains or um, they're still, uh, you know, they are still entitled to moral issues. So when in in this term when you when you lack a clear framework for your decisions then you can witness a lot of noises coming from different analysis because they don't have the baseline the mutual baseline they don't have the mutual um, um you know 
goal, right? And um, this this is very very hard to to grasp. And as you see that, the more you are in this crisis, the harder you can get out of it. And also, if you get out of it, the more the crisis continues, the harder you can get back to the normal life. Uh, in in some point, when when you are dealing with uh, like. Um, I, I guess that in, in terms of individual um, behaviors, like we can say like Asian behaviors, we can see that still, at least it's my observation. I'm, I'm, I don't want to you know, generalize my observation, but at least what I, I've witnessed is that there are still lots of people who have not taken this uh, pandemic seriously enough for example, last week I was in, in a grocery store and nobody wore masks except me and a few um, Asian guys. So maybe, and we can we can witness that the real correlation between the amount of information that you get from the problem and the respected uh, the uh, the. Uh, the um, appropriate behavior that you you have against um, this problem. So, for example, I, I I would assume that those Asian guys are wearing masks because they actually witnessed what was happening in Wuhan and in China in general firsthand. I I wore a, a mask because. I got the information from different outlets, and I was following the the news. Uh, since early January, right? So at some point, these co- these individual levels will uh, contribute to the emergence of a collective level of panic, I would say, because I, I really don't think that, you know, right now we have witnessed the... Um, the level of pan- the collective panic that um, um, that is like gonna be potentially happening in the near future. We are still in this stage that some people are in denial, and once this collective behavior will emerge, and there are enough percentage of people who are panicking, especially given the fact that. There are no coming um, solid positive news in in the following weeks. Then um, we're gonna witness very very nonlinear responses. Every individual makes decisions based on their own circumstances. What um, the the entire system, how the entire system would would be affected by this. Uh, unpredictability. I I cannot say that. I I can say that the worst case scenario can happen uh, when there are enough percentage of people and individuals who are panicking enough to do some kind of irrational or rational behaviors. I I don't know based on their circumstances um, that can impact the entire system as a whole. Um, so ha- 
how do you prevent that? I don't know. It still depend. It's still uh, really dependent on the goal that you want to achieve, the the problem that you want to frame. Do you really want to just you know uh, save your economy uh, economic system, or do you really want to stick to the moral um, uh, constraints? I'm not sure. It, it depends on the on the system you are talking about. So it's it's really complicated, but at the same time, it's really interesting to see these patterns of emergent behaviors in this um, in this crisis. Right. Well, so when I when I listen to uh, to people sort of separate the economic issue from the livelihood issue and from the lives issue, I don't think that's necessarily the most um, sophisticated point of view to hold because uh, let's just say for example i'm the leader of one of the countries to me the livelihood of people their lives the economy and the protection of them are all basically one thing if you separate them you're going to create uh, a set of concerns that are not going to be um it's going to be uh, intractable so the way i would look at that is say okay look we have this issue uh, we have this virus we don't know how far it's been spread and right now, the problem is that it's asymmetrically costing us money because we have to lock everybody down because we don't know where this predator is. It's a hidden predator. But if we can get more testing involved, we can see more people who are potentially carrying the, the, the virus. We can isolate them, the people who don't have it. We can sort of move them to one part of the, uh, the system where we can say, OK, here, everybody gets tested every morning. Uh, we, we make sure that you know nobody's showing any symptoms. The people who are um, infected, they're in a different area just for now, temporarily. Get them, uh, you know, the treatment they deserve and try to get the economy to, to sustain itself because you can't also shut down everything. And the people who advocate for that are throwing the baby out with the bad bathwater, right? So in an essence, you don't want to separate the two things. You want to think of them on a, on a parallel track. You have to say, yes, we don't want people dying, obviously. We also don't want the economy to completely collapse so that when we get out of this, everybody's jobless and we get 25% unemployment. And the last time that happened, we had a guy named Hitler come into power and we had uh, Stalin come into power and we had all sorts of um, you know, uh, other kind of problems that manifest itself. So we want to try to tackle all these problems all at once. There is no there, – anybody who th takes it on one point of view and just says this is the only thing that matters, everything else is, is irrelevant, it's a person who is essentially – confusing um, their ability to understand uncertainty uh, because that's what they say well you know this virus is uncertain we don't know what it's going to do we're going to get people murdered that's fine but then they come back to you with a very certain solution well the solution is certainly this and you go well yeah but what about the consequences of that the consequences of that you don't even know what that's going to lead to well you know that's you know that's not really the main problem here i'm like no you have to stop and think we have to be uh, reasonable in all our approaches um, the minute we can make this thing visible, we have a better shot at containing it and we have a better shot at maintaining the livelihood of the country because people, uh, you know, they don't realize it takes 100 years for a country to become economically stable, you know, to progress towards everybody having a decent job, everybody getting, you know, uh, uh, proper opportunities for their families and their kids. And then within three months, you could shut all that off and everything goes back to, you know, uh, two, three hundred years ago and everybody's poor all over again. That's also not a viable solution. So uh, I'm in that camp where um, I was early to say this is a problem, we need to address it, but I'm also in the uh, early other camp to say, yeah, 
the drastic measures of just discounting the economy as if it's nothing is also not a good solution, right? So both of those things can create problems. In both cases, you are humble before the uncertainty of what you're dealing with, but you don't want to be absolutely certain in your solution either. The solution can't just be everybody stay home for the next year, right? It just doesn't work. So I think leaders who try to appease a particular crowd and they look, everybody looks th through things through their lens and the, the, the track uh, that you want to approach is to say, how can I look at this from multiple lenses? How can I try to appreciate everybody's point of view and then make a decision on that front? And the reason why that's interesting is because uh, it comes back to you and, I, and I'm going to ask you, how come the per uh, Iranian government didn't recognize the problem? And when they did, what have they done so far to contain this problem? You were spot on because I, I totally agree with your point of view. But in terms of systems engineering um, uh, aspect, uh, like as, as a systems engineer, um, we understand that okay, you have a you have an environment and you face with a problem, right? And you want to come up with a solution, but the point is. In order to implement your solution, in order to deploy your solution in, in, an, in an appropriate context, an appropriate environment, in order to, you know, tackle the main problem, first of all, you have limited resources, right? And second of all, you need to understand how do you want to realize this solution? Like, theoretically speaking, they are all, you know, great solutions that we all need to do. Like, for example, testing for everybody, right? But I'm, I'm not saying that it's not possible. It's definitely possible, especially for like wealthy and developed countries like the United States, for example. But um, it's not the case for all the countries in the world. Testing for all, everyone, everybody. You need to consider the, you know, restrictions and infrastructure of, of these uh, countries, the amount of wealth they have, the amount of the, um, I mean, how serious the, this crisis has already got in their country. So there are different, different, you know, criteria that you need to take into into consideration and. Also, when, when you deploy your solution into the problem in order to meet the, you know, to address, um, I'm sorry, into the environment in order to uh, address your problem, there is possibility that, I mean, it's not even possibility, it's certain that your environment is not going to be the same as your previous environment. You just added something into the environment in order to in order to you know um, address the the real problem but what this means is that maybe the solution that you that you propose and you deployed is also causing some second order you know problems in your environment how do you want to manage that so exactly when when you this is the fact when you want to, you know, frame your uh, decisions. How do you want to um, approach to address this problem? These are very, very important questions that you need to ask 
of course you don't have all these informations because it's all about uncertainties. It's all about taking risks. But are you taking these risks um, um, with uh, with an acceptable logic? Are you prepared for the for, for the worst case scenario, or are you just relied on the luck? And in terms of the um, your question, <laughs> well, I'm I'm I have been uh, you know out. Um, I mean, I've never been in Iran in the last five years. So all these um, news that I get from Iranian government's actions against the spread of this um, virus is just based on, you know, firsthand, um, you know, my some of the friends that I have there, they told me something or my families, uh, they told me something about their actions. But um in general, um, they are not locking down um, organizations and companies. Um, they um, they were not um, um, closing different roads. So um, I don't know if you know it, but we had a New Year, like the Persian New Year, and it was two weeks of um, holidays, and I heard that so many people went to vacations and the roads were not closed. And you, when you see this macro pattern of mobility within the boundaries of this country, you're thinking that, okay, um, I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't know the logic behind the uh, reactions of Iranian government. And I'm sure that their um, official data is not accurate because I personally know at least five people who have been died from coronavirus. Um, so hear that. Yeah, it's. I mean, when I know at least five people who died from um, from this coronavirus, it seems to me like a very serious issue. And I've heard that, um, like, healthcare systems are not, you know, compatible with the amount of uh, patients, um, coronavirus, especially coronavirus patients. Uh, they, they suggest that you should stay home and don't come to the, to hospitals and, you know, emergency rooms unless it is very, very necessary. Um, so they, are in the midst of this um, um, economic collapse and healthcare collapse, and yet they are not um, acting appropriately. Uh, well, because of the, um, in my opinion, it's it's just my opinion. I'm not saying that this is the real uh, issue, but in my opinion, the um, government system in Iran is getting to a more kind of a chaotic situation that I no longer can can reason through their actions, like whether they are purposefully <laughs> doing nothing about this. I don't know if they are so incompetent to do anything about it. It's completely possible. So it's 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 a very complicated country to. Um, to study, 
you cannot you know rely on their official data either so um it's kind of i would say that it's kind of a separate um um uh, use case uh, study uh I, I have no solid answer to your question. So uh, all I can see is that they are not doing it appropriately, but I cannot come up with a with a good reason and logic for their actions. Is it okay. intentional or not? I am not sure. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me let me put you in a bit of a hot seat now because uh, since you're studying mm, uh, systems that are related to scientific uh, inquiry in terms of the rigor that's required. So when I hear somebody claim uh, along those lines, uh, I immediately want to test uh, their ability to make predictions, right? Because for me, uh, this is just my own personal bias. Obviously, it's not applicable to everybody. But for me, uh, a field of science that's actually you know worthy of, um, of deep respect and application in the real world, there has to have some characteristic of, of predictability to it. So I'm going to put you in the hot spot, and you, you're welcome to say you don't know, but I, it is a risky conversation. I do, I, we get it. It's your opinion. Feel free to just take a shot at it. You don't have to, you know, give the academic answer of I'm not sure. So I'm just going to give you the warning right off the, off the bat. But so let's look at it this way. So you have two systems. You have the United States, and you have Iran. We know we have different infrastructures in terms of how they're going to handle the same problem, because both of them have the same problem right now, which is the coronavirus. So. If you have two different systems, what is going to be the adaptive emergent behavior uh, where in, uh, that you can predict uh, with some level of co- uh, confidence in how the United States is going to handle this versus a closed authoritarian um, uh, state like Iran? So feel free. Take a swing. It's all good. Nobody's going to hold you uh, uh, accountable for these words. It's all good. They were just two friends having a conversation. Go for it. Well, um, to be honest with you, when you, when you are – trying to compare two different systems to each other, um, you need to understand the differences. Uh, I, I really think that the people in Iran, their behavior is completely different from, from the people in some first world country like the United States. Um, the people in Iran, like, I don't know if you remember, um, it was a disaster about that, and you know, um, airplane they shot it. I don't know intentionally or unintentionally and killed 170 people. Um, so every day, people in Iran facing real crisis, right? It's not a pandemic, but it's regional crisis. It's directly, right. it's directly. Um, impacting their life so do they um, react to uh, to a problem like a pandemic like a COVID-19 pandemic similar to the way that American people will react I don't think so so the um the emergent behavior of these people um it's completely different at the same time, uh, the people in Iran are kind of uh, prepared. I'm not saying prepared. They just accept their um, fate, kind of. Um, so they are 
ready for many, um, you know, much more negative news from this pandemic. But on, on the other hand, the United States people don't used to these kind of crises. They want they they have had their you know easy, quiet, and rather stable um, life for so long, and then all of a sudden they have to be quarantined. And um, even though that the impact of this crisis, the, the the objective impact of the crisis to to the economic system, to whatever systems um, you're talking about, like the political systems, all these countries, the reaction to to these changes in in the environment is not the same. Maybe um, even though the Iranian people have faced with much, much more serious crisis, they can adapt better. Uh, because they are also, I mean, I, 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 the same thing, the similar thing as anti-fragility that Nassim is promoting. Um, they, they are, I guess they are more anti-fragile in terms of people. But in terms of the government, it's, it's a totally different story. You are, you are talking about a different scale. A different uh, layer in this system. Uh, whether um, Iranian government can survive out of this um, crisis, I really don't know. It's really possible that they they won't if this this gets more and more severe. And if, for example, the news of success in achieving um, an appropriate vaccine is not coming in the following weeks, so there are different aspects to these problems so that's why you cannot kind of compare um, these two countries in as a whole like you need to you know focus your lens what are you talking about what kind of specific you know aspects you are looking for to predict I'm, I'm in no sense I'm predicting anything. So I, I, I cannot, I mean, it's, it's more complicated than uh, being, than, for, you know, me being able to cr- predict these things. But I, I would say that there are branches of probabilities and this probability is not very low, not insignificant. The probability of the government will collapse eventually. Because you know, it, the risk is um, uh, the risk is uh, accumulative, so so accumulating over time, and the Iranian government has been taking very very uh, deadly risks for um, I can say so long. So I don't know if they can you know um, get out of this crisis. Well, so uh, on that front, uh, I'll, I'll give you my take on it. And again, um, uh, this is just an opinion amongst many opinions. Uh, so if it comes true, so be it. If it doesn't, again, so be it. It's 50-50 shot. The way I see it is that in any case, um, typically a authoritative state tends to be able to survive if it can externalize their cruelty onto their people while shielding themselves from the 
direct and indirect um, blowback of it. In this particular case, the cruelty that is being foisted upon the country is not one that is tailored from the state to the people. It's everybody. So I think when all of them get sick and the people uh, start to look at this and say, look, we've been under this terrible regime and this uh, oppressive amount of control and you guys couldn't even protect us from this and even your own authority keeps you know, uh, degrading its value in the sense that what you claim you could do for us is evidently more and more false than it ever was. And I think this is the type of thing that can catalyze uh, the whole structure collapsing in on itself. So I will take that position to say that I think there's a pretty good probability, 51-49, not 90-10, not 99-1-1, I think 51-49 that the Iranian um, uh, authoritative state doesn't come out of this intact. I think what may happen is that the people will finally say, look, we've had enough, you guys have been trying it your way, and clearly you're not capable of handling anything um, because uh, the rest of the world also suffered from this. So it's not like you guys can say that it's not our fault, but at least they were better prepared in the sense that they had more wealth at their disposal to handle at least trying to get us back up on our feet. You guys have squandered years and years of being in power. You haven't done anything economically for us. You haven't done enough economically for yourself. The price of oil is dropped. To, you know, it's, it's cheaper to buy a, a large pizza than it is to buy a barrel of oil now. So I think, given all those factors, that if I was a betting man, um, and this is an open system, so obviously there's no um, real way to say it's going to go left or right. And typically in open systems, as, as I've learned from Nassim, the odds are always 50-50. But in this case, I'm willing to go that extra mile and say 51-49 in favor of the people overthrowing this authoritative government. Um, that's, I guess that's the best case scenario, unfortunately, because um, the problem is that the people in, uh, in Iran are so... I mean, I, I, it's, it's not a scientific term, but uh, like we are having a conversation, are so tired. They don't have um, energy. Like, even though they um, get to some kind of wealth and pleasure and, you know, um, peace to some extent, they are too tired to just be proactive in, um, in, uh, you know, uh, 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 overthrowing the government. Plus, when when you are dealing with this kind of exhaustion, then I mean, emergent behaviors need uh, like some kind of modules try to grow and activate their neighboring modules, and their neighboring modules activate the other modules, and then this emergent behavior arises from bottom up. But what if there are not enough uh, modules that have uh, enough resources and energy and um, innovation to just grow? So this is, this is one of the, one of the like, worst-case scenarios. In this case, sometimes uh, an outsider stimuli or some kind of changes in, in their environment might force them to just wake up. But 
um, these these uh, environment effects are just happening in the boundaries of the system, right? That's exactly the thing that might happen for Iran. And in these kind of uh, crises, you are dealing with a pandemic. So all these countries are involved. It's not like uh, China is not involved or Russia is not involved. Everyone is in the same game and they are trying their best to just get out of this crisis. So it's not like the government has mm, their usual um, outside resources that they can, you know, seek for. Well, so I hear what you're saying, and, and here's why I'm, I'm going to give that extra 51, 49 percentage point. It's twofold. One, typically a tyrannical source of a state needs a proxy supporter, sort of like a, what we would call a patron. So typically you had the Soviet Union that was funding various you know, Eastern Bloc comp- uh, countries with their puppet dictators taking orders from Moscow. Uh, or you have Kim Jong-un taking orders from uh, Xi Jinping in China. In this particular instance, they're, 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 it's kind of weird. It's asymmetrically set up, and I mean that in the following way. So you got to think of this sort of like if you're playing hockey, right? If you're a goaltender and you need to win, but your team can't score very much, you have to stop every single shot coming in your direction. So the Iranian government is set up in such a way where they have to be perfect so that they can stop something from happening. The reason they have to be perfect is, in this particular instance, and under these circumstances, their usual allies are not in a position to offer them any help. So that's one problem for them. I'm sure China could if they wanted to, but I'm not sure they will in this particular instance because they have their own bigger problems to deal with. But two, the more interesting aspect of it is, if you remember the Arab Spring actually started out with a young man who lit himself on fire. I believe it started off in um, Morocco, Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But it took one person to sort of speak, as you said, to be the catalyst to instantiate the response and the node next to them. And everybody started to just kind of get fed up enough. And then you get the madness of crowds and you get the energy just sort of feeding in and of itself. And the reason I bring that up is that if you study political systems, um, which is what I was doing before uh, we, we came on to this conversation with you, because I was trying to bring a different element to help stimulate the conversation on that front is that political systems are essentially containers for energy flow within the population. So a good container is one where you have release valves in multiple locations. So that's what the United States is sort of set up like, right? So you have the Congress, which cuts the checks. You have the Senate, which usually writes the laws. Then you have the executive branch, and that's where they actually go and, you know, make decisions. Then you also have the Supreme Court that makes sure that anything that they do is not unconstitutional. And so on any given day, on any given issue, half the people are divided, and that's what you want, because you want multiple pulls and pushes in various directions. And the best part of it is <clears throat> every two to four years, they get to change sort of directions. Now, it may not be perfect. We get that, but at least it gives you something. Now, if you contain that system like you do in an authoritative state, i.e. something like what they do in Iran, is it's kind of like putting a pressure cooker and yeah, you can contain it for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, but eventually it just takes one instance of one person showing an act of civil disobedience, the likes of which can erupt uh, the sympathy and empathy of all their fellow countrymen. And when that happens, uh, if that happens, uh, you know, it's going to happen, just a matter of when, not if actually. I believe that that's what's going to tilt the 
conversation from 50-50 of the, the state surviving versus 51-49 of them not surviving. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree with you. Like, eventually, this is not going to be the system that can survive in the long run. That's for sure. Uh, we have uh, we have a principle in systems engineering saying that if your system can be failed, it will be failed. It's just a matter of time. But in terms of um, in terms of uh, um, just immediate uh, prediction of like the near future of Iran, I am a skeptical because I think that um, first of all uh, this mechanism has not um, emerged a true leader out of it and it's possible to win a kind of a social movement without a leader but it's it's hard right because some at some point you need some kind of force to make this synergy to happen and um, it's it's not the case right now, unfortunately. When this leader will emerge from this mechanism, I have no idea. But if it's gonna be the case, eventually, I'm I'm hundred percent sure about that. Uh, if they want to, if they can survive out of this crisis. Um, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's relatively speaking, I can say that, okay, probably yes, because, um, I've heard that in their news, they are, um, advertising that, oh, look at these, um, first world countries, they, uh, their stock, um, their food is stock, they're like, I don't know, paper towel stock is, empty and yet we have all these kind of um, 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 stuff in our you know grocery stores so uh, we are you know thriving this um, through this um, crisis but the point is they are not factoring the fact that uh, okay in in the first world country people have actually cash or they have credits, um, they can use it during crisis. But in Iran, they don't have cash. They don't have like liquid money as much as uh, first world countries do. So these kind of um, so so that's why they might not be able to you know stock up on foods or some necessary stuff during this crisis. So this is not an, a good indication of their success against you know, beating um, this um, um, virus. But again, these are advertisements and these are kind of populist approaches in order to take, in order to just um, take control of this um, situation. So um, if, they, if they're going to survive, I don't think so. But if they're going to survive out of this crisis, I'm not sure. It's possible that they don't, but um, it's still possible that they do. So, yeah. So just a, a curious question. Do they have credit cards available in Iran? Because I know they don't in Afghanistan. I'm, I was never really, that's a question I never really thought about until you just mentioned that. 
Uh, is there credit cards and, and, and lines of credit and personal loans and stuff like that set up in the banking countries there, or are those haram and therefore they don't allow it? Well, um, as far as I know, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm five years like out of this country, so I'm not sure, uh, but during the time that I was there, there was no such thing as credit cards. Um, you had to pay everything with your cash. Um, there were some kinds of loans, uh, and I know that, you know, uh, there were some kind of emergence of, you know, private banking system. So they gave you a lot of, you know, money in terms of loans, but with higher interest rate. Um, but I'm, I'm not a good person to, to say that. I, I can say that as far as I know, they didn't have credit cards, uh, but it might have changed. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So uh, on that front, I mean, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch all this stuff unfurl. Uh, and with respect to your time, is there anything else uh, you would like to go over that we didn't have a chance to con- uh, talk about yet? No, I, um, I mean, if you have any specific questions, but not, no. Okay, so we have uh, a couple of questions from Twitter. So I'll just give them to you, and you can just quickly, um, uh, you know, respond to them the best you know how. Uh, so the first question is: um, typically, a system is, uh, in essence, two mechanisms. Uh, one mechanism is the information that flows through the system, and the other mechanism is how that information is processed. So when you look at the systems that you're studying. Where do you find the best places to put leverage in? Is it the flow of information or is it the actual computation of what to do with that information that gives you the most bang for buck? Combination of both, I would say. Um, we have different uh, types of methodologies um, in, you know, uh, facing with this problem. We have two different concepts, validation and verification. I'm not sure if we already talked about it. I don't remember. But um, validation is to uh, make sure that, okay, this order of uh, preferences that you come up with in your solution space is actually right, meaning that um, this effort that you're making is actually meeting the correct uh, problem. So the flow of information kind of... uh, and requires this uh, validation process. But in terms of computation and accuracy of this, uh, this flow of information, it's, it's another, uh, it's, it's, it's another, um, you know, subject when you are doing verification. Is the system is, uh, structured or is behaving as the way it is, it is supposed to behave in terms of systems designers' a point of view. So these, these are the things that we need to make sure of. And there are different types of you know, modeling that we can you know, use in terms of what kind of questions we want to answer. The first thing is that you know, everybody knows that real world is different from model world, right? But um, in terms of answering some specific questions, then if you need to, you know, um, 
use appropriate type of model um, if you are want to you know analyze a specific decision making uh, point or analyze a specific trade off analysis um, you can use a specific model mathematical model or if you want to kind of understand one abstract concept in the real world there's another types of you know modeling it allows you to kind of better understand the abstraction of the world and and the abstraction of the you know information that you need to um, have for your system there are other types of models that um, um, you use in order to actually use as an analogy of system behavior how does this uh, work with this level of knowledge with this level of available information in your system. So there are some techniques to come up with, but um, both sides are very important. Um, but uh, you know, it, it depends on the perspective that you look at your uh, your problem. If you want to to make sure that this solution is the right one to to your problem, then um, the uh, information, the flow of information, and the uh, the source of this information becomes very important. If you're talking about if the system that I built is um, is the way that I want it to be, then it's types of it's it's matter of you know computation error, model error, and things like that. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. And the next question we had was from um, one of our uh, younger audience members who was uh, looking to get into your field. Uh, what should they really focus on uh, being strong at to, to succeed in your field? Is it the math? Is it the physics? Uh, is it a combination of both? Or is it just something else? I would say the philosophy. Like, um before uh, people get into systems engineering and system types of world, um, they need to equip themselves with the philosophy of system science. So it's a it's a branch of it's a branch of uh, system science. It's system philosophy. Once you understand the philosophy behind uh, this concept, and then then you can use like systems theory, the principles you apply to this philosophy in order to, you know, grasp the real world and apply it to your uh, problems. Um, I would say that these are the main prerequisite for being a good systems engineer. And then, yes, uh, math, math is really important. If you want to be a good systems engineer, you need to understand different uh, ma mathematical theories like um, probability theory, um, set theory, category theory, um, decision theory. Uh, so yeah, math is really helpful in, in that um, context, but I would say the first step is understanding the philosophy. Um, it's, it's much more helpful. Okay, perfect. Well, that wraps up the questions we had from our from our audience. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your uh, point of view and sharing with us your knowledge and your perspective. 
Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any conversation worthy of having will inherently be a risky one. Thank you for listening. Stay anti-fragile and carry on the ancient tradition and your own unique way of saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat and Ace Deliri signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations. 